If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, you can open them up to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be camping out in verses 6 to 10. Well, we are at the start of a new year, and at the beginning of a new year, I want us to think about the thousands and thousands of things that at the end of this year you could have accomplished. There are thousands and thousands of different titles that you don't have now that maybe at the, this, at the end of this year you could have. There is a lot of applause from people that you could earn. There are a lot of different, really great things that you could do, but this morning I want to focus on one that Scripture elevates above all of them. And this is to be called a good servant. At the end of our life, if there is anything that we are be, to be known for, it is to be a man or a woman who has served God with our lives. Scripture promotes this title above all other titles to be called a good servant. In fact, Scripture redefines greatness in this world by this, not by how much you've accomplished, but by how much you've served. Think for a moment about Jesus Christ. Think about how he sets this up as the ultimate goal for his followers when he says that some of them will hear these words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Think about how Jesus exemplified this as the true servant of God when he was willing to be obedient to God, even to the point of death. When he took up the cross with joy, the greatest instrument of pain, the thing that would lead to his death, he took it up with joy knowing that he would serve God and serve man through this instrument of death. Think about how being the good servant was the ultimate pursuit of the disciples. Ringing in their ears would be when Jesus told them in Mark 10, 43, that whoever would be great among you must be your servant, that you must be a slave to all men if you want to be great in this kingdom. Think about the Apostle Paul who started most of his letters with this title, that he was a servant of Christ. In light of all of this, the title that we ought to pursue this year is not the promotion at work, but to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want to put before you two resolutions that the good servant of Jesus Christ makes. And this is in light of all of the things that we are told we ought to be in this world. This is in light of all the pursuits that we are prone to pursue instead of pursuing being a good servant of Jesus Christ. Day in and day out, we are drawn to uh, go after those things that may not be the great thing. We're drawn to pursue those things that may not be the ultimate thing. And so as we dig into God's word this morning, we want to resolve how can we become the good servant? How can we finish this race, end this life, and it be said of us that we served God with all of our energy, with everything that we were? How do we become the servant, the good servant? Well, in 1 Timothy, Paul's writing to his disciple Timothy, and he's helping a young pastor navigate some troublesome waters. See, Timothy and his young ministry is dealing with a lot of problems. There are false teachers in this church, and they are spreading false doctrine, and the problem with this false doctrine is that it's leading to false pursuits. People are giving their lives to things that are completely worthless. People are giving their lives to things that will essentially, in the end, lead to eternal destruction. And Timothy's asking Paul, how can I deal with this false teaching? How can I show people the proper way? 
Mark, that it's not a greater intellectual ability. Mark, that it's not a more vigorous attack against the opponents. Mark, that it's the humble and meek call to be a servant of Jesus Christ. To serve God by focusing on what pleases him. And so we're going to read 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 10 right now. And from it, we're going to pull out two resolutions that the good servant makes. Let's read what the word of God says. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope. We have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. If we want to resolve to be a good servant, the first resolution that we need to make is this, I will set before me what is right. I will put before me what is right. This is the first resolution of the good servant to put before themselves the things that are noble, to put before themselves the things that are true. And so look at what Paul says to Timothy in the very first words of our passage. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. See, if Timothy wants to serve his flock well in the midst of controversy, then he needs to be continually putting in front of them the things that will build them up. Now, when Paul refers to these things, it's likely that he's referring to everything he's written about in this entire letter. Now, throughout this letter, we'll do a quick recap. Paul has taught uh, Timothy about the place of the law. He's taught Timothy about the place of grace in his own personal life. He's shown Timothy the way that the church needs to conduct himself. And so Timothy now is to put these things continually, day after day. Some of your translations might even read this. He's to be putting these things before the flock. You could summarize what Timothy needs to be putting before the flock as this, gospel-centered theology about a gospel-centered life. How do you live the life that pleases God? How do you live the life that is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, by holding up the beauty of gospel-centered theology leading to the gospel-centered life, Timothy's flock would be submitted to a holy forgetfulness. Now, forgetfulness is often something we think of in a negative term, but Paul wants us to think about it in a positive term, in that when we put good, noble, worthy things in front of us, when we behold the beauty of gospel-centered theology leading to gospel-centered living, we forget everything else. And so what Paul has to say to Timothy, if you want to deal with this false teaching, then what you need to do is show them the right way. You need to show them the beauty of the gospel because when you're focused on the right thing, you forget the wrong thing. Another way to say this is we pursue the right thing by beholding the right thing. And so Paul's confident that the right strategy to get this church back on track is by constantly putting before them the beauty of the gospel, constantly showing them how great Jesus Christ is. Now this is important for us to hear because in the same way that Timothy, as the pastor of that church, was to put before his church the gospel, we are to be putting before ourselves day in and day out continually the beauty of the gospel. 
When we behold the beauty of Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us, we will pursue Jesus Christ. We will long to serve Jesus Christ. I was reminded of this recently. We've been introducing our daughter to solids for the first time, and we uh, cooked up some acorn squash, and some of you are thinking, like, why would you ever start there? I don't know. That's just what we did, first parents. And we got a spoon, and we gave it to her, and we put it in her mouth, and she gave uh, Amber, my wife, this look like, how could you betray me like this? Like, this stuff is disgusting. She liked the, the spoon. She wanted to chew on it, but she wanted nothing to do with the food. It reminded me of uh, videos I've seen on YouTube where children get sugar for the first time. It's like the first time they're given a spoon of chocolate, and it touches their lips, and they beheld the glory of how great chocolate is. I'm hearing an amen from a lot of women in the church. They beheld the glory of how great chocolate is, and their eyes open wide, and all of a sudden their arms are spread out. Give me more of that stuff. Like, get rid of that acorn squash, give me the chocolate. Now, that's a silly way to illustrate for us exactly what happens when we behold the glory of Jesus Christ. See, as we stick our face in front of how great Jesus Christ is, when we put before us this good thing, then in our hearts we long for more of him. And so the way that we pursue what is right is by beholding what is right. The same thing happens when not with us when we put the beauty of the gospel in front of us, when he's displayed to us in his word. Now notice that Timothy desires, that Paul desires Timothy to be purposeful in what he's putting before his flock. And so he says in verse 6, that in doing this, putting these things before the brothers, he'll be being trained in the words of faith and of good doctrine. The content of what he is to put before the brothers is summed up in two things. First, the words of faith. These surely would have been the things, the the exact phrases that they had heard from Jesus Christ. And so Timothy was to stand in front of the church week after week, day after day, and herald the truth of what he had been taught by Jesus Christ. Well, the second thing that Timothy was to put before them was the good doctrine. Timothy, growing up in the church, would have known doctrine, would have known what God's word said, would have had a system for understanding God's word, and he was to continually teach the doctrine of God's word to people. Timothy was to be purposeful in ensuring that he was growing, in, that he was growing his flock in the knowledge of the gospel and the knowledge of theology. And so as we resolve to be a good servant, The first resolution requires that we be growing in our knowledge of God's word. Now, let me suggest a few ways that we can do this. There are some people in here, you are breadth readers, okay? And so when you read God's word, you read read through it in a year, which is a great thing. And you've been doing that for multiple years. And when we talk about like that series we just had, which was awesome, where we kind of dug through all of what, what God's word says about Christ's coming, we talked a bit about biblical theology. You're like, amen, because you understand this book from cover to cover. You get the grand narrative of scripture. You've started to understand the story of redemption. But when it comes to digging in a single book, you haven't spent much time being deep in those single books. And so maybe if you spent a lot of time reading rapidly through scripture, reading as much as you can, reading through the Bible in one year, maybe it's time for you to spend a few months digging into one book. Maybe you need to start in Ephesians. Maybe you need to start memorizing verses in Ephesians, reading it every day, starting to understand the arguments, starting to be able to outline exactly what Paul is saying in the book of Ephesians. 
Maybe you need to buy a, a Bible commentary, and with your Bible open, reading that commentary, starting to get a deeper understanding of Scripture now that you have a wider understanding of Scripture. Now, some of you guys are listening to what I'm saying, and you're saying, amen, I do that. I've been in the book of James for the last 12 years. <laughs> and I want to say to you, that's great. You are sufficiently soaked in the book of James. But maybe you need to pick up a Bible reading plan. And you might say, oh, it's too fast. I don't get anything. But instead of getting specific verses, you need to get more about the grand story of Scripture. And so you need to start reading more widely about Scripture. Maybe you need to pick up a Bible reading plan that works through Scripture in one year. Maybe you need to pick up a biblical theology book and with your Bible open, reading alongside it, learning about the story of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Now notice that Paul adds that not only is Timothy to be purposeful, it is, this is all to lead to him following the doctrine that he has read. He's not only to be trained, but he is to follow everything that he reads. Now notice that it doesn't say you should follow Timothy. Notice that this isn't a command. This is an encouragement to Timothy. See, when Timothy reads doctrine, what we understand from Paul is that he is a man who follows it. Paul says, you have followed. See, the good servant is the one who hears God's word and then does God's word. And so it's not, just, it's not sufficient just to be reading God's word. It is better for us to read one verse this entire year that we act upon than to read 10,000 verses that we do nothing with. We need to be a people who are committing to action, a people who are reading God's word, looking for application, looking for ways that God would change us, looking for ways that God would have us live. One real practical way to do this is in your Bible reading to come out with one thing. Come out with, it with one thing that either you're going to meditate on that day or you're going to try to do that day, an attitude you're going to have, an action you're going to commit to. What is that one way that God's trying to transform you in his word, in your daily scripture reading? Now, Paul continues, if, if Timothy is going to put these things before the flock, then he also needs to be actively showing them what not to believe. And so in verse 7, he says this, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Have nothing to do with them, Timothy. Now, we know if, there's, if we're going to pursue something worthy, then we, there's often things that we need to neglect. And so many of us are feeling a little bit heavier walking in this Sunday than we walked in last Sunday. We've eaten a lot over the Christmas break. I'm getting a lot of nods, a lot of people with me. We have fellowship in this, unity in the amount of chocolate that we ate over Christmas. And now when we make resolutions to change our diet, one of the things that we resolve is to eat good food and avoid bad food. You see, in any good pursuit, there are things that you need to have nothing to do with. And so if you want to lose that weight, you've got to have nothing to do with chocolate. Okay, maybe just once a week or a day, or just whenever you want. But you know you have nothing to do with it, right? Nothing to do with it. And this is what Timothy, or what Paul commands Timothy. Have nothing to do with foolish myths. Have nothing to do with silly myths. They're directly against the goal that you need to get after. Now in the same way, in order to put what is right before us, we need to set aside what is wrong. There are things we must avoid. Now these are myths, now, in this passage, as Paul brings up myths, he's talking about fictitious beliefs which were filling the church and leading people astray. 
Paul doesn't really concern himself much with the nature of these myths. We've already talked about that because the way that you overcome these myths isn't so much by focusing on them, on the content on them. Instead, you behold the glory of the gospel. And throughout, so throughout 1 Timothy, Paul doesn't so much attack each myth individually, but he is concerned with the way that the myths are causing people to pursue other things that are not God. See, this is the problem with myths. This is the problem with false belief. It leads us in a false pursuit. If putting before us the right thing will lead us in the right way, putting before us the wrong thing will lead us in the wrong way. And so we need to have nothing to do with myths because they lead us in the wrong way. Look at what Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1. Look at how concerned he is with people following God, with people knowing the right thing to pursue the right thing. He says this in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. See, the issue is not so much the content, but the end of believing that content. They lead people away from serving God. They lead people away from the pursuit of him. Now, the false beliefs that are particularly to be avoided are those that are irreverent and silly. An irreverent belief is a belief that's godless, not true to God's word, and against him. It's a belief that doesn't fit in line with God's truth. These are the beliefs that we are to avoid. And so the good servant is willing to be shown areas in their own thinking where they might be wrong. And yet, as they're shown these areas, they have a uh, humble confidence that what they've read in Scripture is the proper interpretation of Scripture. And so you need to hear this. You need to have a humble confidence in what you believe. Confident that you've read it to the best of your ability, but humble enough to be able to say, I might be wrong in this. I'll never forget one way that Pastor Brian exemplified this for me. One time we were praying for a woman who was from a different theological background than us. And I remember thinking, I have no idea how this woman got to what she is thinking. And yet as I prayed with Brian, he prayed these words. He said something along the lines of this, if, Lord, if I am wrong in this, would you show me? Now as he prayed this, I was beside him praying, and in my mind I was thinking, uh, there's no way you're wrong. Like, you're Pastor Brian. You can't be wrong. I think that's how it works with the pastors, right? You can't be wrong. That's what I'm thinking, but it struck me off guard because I was so confident, but I didn't have the humility to say that I might be wrong in this. In fact, if someone came up to me, I still think I'm right, but if someone came up to me in this, I, I would just shut them off. There's no way you're right in this. But you see, when we're confident in what we believe Scripture says, we can be open to allowing people to show us how they're reading Scripture, especially in the things that aren't primary doctrines. Listen, in the things that are primary, in the things that are about salvation, in the things that are about Jesus Christ, in the things that are about the cross, you can be confident with no humility. You can go after those things. But in the things that are secondary, where we walk with believers who are good people but believe these things, we need to have a humble confidence, being willing to be shown areas where we are wrong. This is the humble confidence that the good servant has. These myths are both irreverent, but they're also silly. They're silly myths. See, the word that Paul uses here is a word that's only used once in the New Testament, but in other literature, we we hear that it's kind of like a philosophical slang word to make fun of people. It kind of means this, like your philosophy, it's like the kind of philosophy that people talk about, you know, they get together at a knitting club and they, they gossip about another person. They talk about what's useless. 
No offense to anyone that's in a knitting club. You are really cool if you're here and you're in a knitting club. But they talk about things that are useless. They talk about things that are of no value. These are silly myths. They're not worth your time. The servant of God also avoids those things that are useless, also avoids pursuing a knowledge of the things that have no bearing on their walk with the Lord. Now, this is so important for us to hear because you have a choice right now as you sit in your seat. You can either listen to me and hear God's word, or you can pull out a three-inch rectangle that shouts, that like beams information into your face. In fact, it's so easy for us to sit in front of information that the good servant more than ever needs to be mindful of what information they're allowing themselves to see. Are you constantly knowing things that are profiting your walk in godliness? Or are you constantly dulling your mind with things that are not leading to godliness? See, we can pursue silly, false beliefs. We can pursue irreverent beliefs that are useless. Now, if we put what is right before us, then this will lead us in our pursuit. And so the second resolution of the good servant is this. I will pursue what holds promise. The first resolution, I put what is right before me. The second resolution comes from that. I pursue what holds promise. Now, all this talk leads Paul to the positive exhortation in the second half of verse 7, where he says to Timothy, rather train yourself for godliness. Now the word train is not an exertion to do more and to do better. Paul's not telling Timothy that he needs to have this kind of moral, be morally superior to everybody else like the Pharisees were. He's not telling him to, you know, get your life together. You need to do more. You need to read more. You need to pray more. You need to do everything more. Those are all good things, but this is not what Paul is telling Timothy. We can often respond like that, can't we? When we hear a sermon about pursuing God, when when God works in us in a way that he stirs us to want to follow him, often our response is more. I need to do more. I need to wake up earlier. And that might be a good thing for you, Maybe you're lacking in in how much time you're devoting to reading God's word, and you need to wake up earlier and read God's word. But often, what really needs to happen is you need to be more singularly pursuing the glory of God in your life. And this is what Paul is telling Timothy. You need to be more and more solely about the pursuit of God's glory in your life. When Timothy could have... could have pursued all sorts of things. He needed to pursue godliness alone. He needed to stop pursuing all the things that were calling for his attention and purely devote himself to the pursuit of godliness. This alone, the pursuit of godliness. It's the devotion that Jesus tells us about when he teaches us of the one who finds treasure in a field and sells everything in order to attain it. See, everything is focused on this single aim, the pursuit of godliness. Everything is focused on this single aim, the pursuit of doing what pleases God. It's the same thing that the writer of Hebrews writes about when he says, talks about the race in which one must set aside every weight and sin that clings so closely in order to run it. It's the pure, undefiled, resolute devotion to to the pursuit of godliness. Now, in the midst of all that we could be solely devoted to, I want you to notice that Paul says we're to be devoted to godliness. He says, train yourself, discipline yourself for godliness. 
We could be many things. We could have many things. But the greatest thing that we are to have, the sole thing that we are to have, is godliness. This is why in a few chapters, Paul's going to say to Timothy, godliness, as long as you have a gigantic house, is great gain. That's not right, is it? No, he's going to say, godliness, as long as your family is picture perfect all the time and you never get angry at each other and you never yell at your wife, is great gain. That's not what he's going to say, is it? No, he's going to say godliness with contentment is great gain. You see, at the end of the day, the only thing you need to be content is godliness. The only pursuit that you need to get after for joy is godliness. The only thing you need, everything, is godliness. Think for a moment about our Lord. Think for a moment about Jesus Christ. He came to this world as a king, yet with no riches, born in a manger, He lived his entire life relatively free from possessing anything. The scriptures say he had no place to lay his head. Throughout his life, he pursued nothing that did not lead to the glory of the Father. All he had at the end of the day was godliness and his commitment to serve God. And in the final days, he walked bearing nothing but the cross. See all that his godliness had earned him. It had earned him a cross on his back, and yet he bore the cross with joy. This was all he had, was his commitment to God, his desire to glorify God, his desire to serve God. With the singular devotion to godliness in mind, Paul continues with the athletic metaphor he began. He says, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. In order to show Timothy, the the value of godliness, he compares it to something else that actually does also have some value. He asks Timothy to think for a moment about bodily training. He says, bodily training and exercise and disciplining yourself for the health of your body has value in this life, but all of its effects are temporal. One day, your body will pass away, and no matter how healthy you were, you will be the same amount of feet under the grave as the person who was unhealthy their whole life. See, bodily discipline, bodily training affects this life. It holds promise for this life, but Paul says that godliness is of value in every way because it holds promise both for this life and the life to come. Now, I want to focus on that godliness bit, but before we focus on how godliness is of value in this life and the life to come, I want to talk for a moment about where bodily training and exercise and diet fits in the Christian worldview. You see, in the Christian worldview, there is a place for pursuing fitness. There is a place for having proper nutrition. Now, this place is, this bodily training and exercise always serve us. They always serve us. By that I mean we never serve it. And so in the fitness culture, one thing that you'll find is a lot of people are pursuing fitness. A lot of people are eating the way they're eating, going to the gym the way that they're going to the gym because they want people to notice them. They want their fitness to serve them, to show other people how great they are. Look how disciplined I am. Look how big I am. Look how strong I am. Look how skinny I am. See, they want to be seen. But bodily exercise, bodily training, having a proper diet and nutrition fits in the Christian worldview so long as it serves your pursuit of godliness. See, it is a good thing to pursue godliness when you feel healthy. We all know in this season of insane sickness, wiping out our church pretty much, 
We all know that it is harder to worship God when your mind is groggy. It's harder to worship God when you're constantly sick. It's harder to worship God when you're constantly battling physical ailments. And so there is a place for pursuing healthy living. There is a place for bodily health, so long as it serves your pursuit of godliness, so long as it serves you pursuing the glory of God. And so, at this time, when, when many people are making resolutions to change their diet, to start going back to the gym, this is a good thing. Resolve to do these things. Let's all resolve together to get ripped to the glory of God. I hope that if there's one quote that I'm known for, that's it. <laughs> this is a good thing. As long as it's behind the best thing, pursuing godliness. Now, Paul wants Timothy to remember that in comparison to the pursuit of godliness, godliness is infinitely greater because its value is both now and forever. Now, we need to think about this because I think as Christians, we really understand godliness profiting us forever. And so we'll pursue godliness because we know that it has eternal value. But sometimes we don't pursue godliness because we know it's present value. Let me explain what I mean. We'll pursue godliness because we know someday we'll spend heaven with eternity in heaven with Jesus. And we know as Christians that this life is but a flicker in comparison to the time that we will spend with Jesus. And so sometimes when godliness is hard, we'll grit our teeth and we'll say, okay, it's just, you know, this is just nothing but a flicker. This life is so temporary, but heaven is going to be so great. But I want you to notice what else Paul's saying here. See, he says godliness is gain right now. So that if you want to live the best day that you could live, even today, if you want to have the best hour, even in this hour, then you need to be pursuing godliness. Godliness holds promise right now. Yes, it holds promise for eternity, but it also holds promise for right now, for today. If you pursue godliness today, you pursue ultimate joy today. The greatest way that you can live your life is by pursuing godliness with your life. Now, this is so important for us to hear because we can kind of act as Christians who are like, okay, I'm being godly. I wish I could just not be godly. I wish I could pursue this sin in this life, but I'm being godly because I know I'm going to spend eternity with heaven. But you need to know this. The way that God calls us to live in the scriptures is the best way to live in this world. It's the way that unlocks the most joy in your life. Right now, today, if you pursue godliness, godliness is hard, but it is so sweet. It is the greatest decision you could ever make. It's the greatest commitment you could ever make. It's the greatest resolution you could ever make is to take up godliness. Well, let me, let's just think about a few ways that godliness is of value now. Think about uh, perhaps a financial problem that you're in. We tend to think about financial problems as outside of the Christian worldview, as outside of the realm of Christianity and outside of the realm of what the Bible has to say to us. Now, there's a lot of different re reasons you can be in a financial problem, yet often the greatest reason we're in financial trouble is because we haven't been wise with the way that we've budgeted our money and used the resources that God has given to us. And so if we were to pursue godliness, if we were to ask God, God, how can I serve you with your money? What we will find is that often this will lead us out of financial trouble. See, godliness helps us to budget properly. Godliness helps us to use our money in a way that is wise. Godliness helps us stay out of financial trouble. It is profit to us now. What about relationships in your life? Maybe there's relationships in your life that are frayed, bridges that are burned. 
Godliness tells you to repent as quickly as you can of any way that you've wronged somebody and restore that relationship. This is so important for us to hear around uh, Christmas time when we're with families and so often sometimes we need to get out of the house and just hold our hands over our eyes and say, oh man, how am I going to stay here for three more hours? But there are relationships, if we were to pursue godliness, that we need to restore, that the pursuit of godliness will lead us to say, I need to make this right. And so relationships are restored as we pursue godliness. This is benefit to us now in this life. Do you see it? Do you see how the pursuit of godliness holds promise not only for eternity, but promise for now? Now, if you still aren't convinced, if those two examples aren't enough for you, then I want you to read through the book of Proverbs. See, Proverbs begins here, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Many times that comes up, but Proverbs is overwhelmingly filled with practical advice about how to live in God's world. Just practical things that you need to do if you want to succeed in God's world. If you want to actually be the kind of person who fears the Lord, here are some practical things you need to do. Don't be lazy. Right? And so Proverbs is always coming with these very practical pieces of wisdom that lead you to godliness, that lead you to fear the Lord. When you, fear, when you walk in godliness, when you pursue godliness, you pursue what is best for you right now. And so we need to be resolved to pursue what holds promise for us. Now to add his, his stamp of approval to everything that he just said, he, Paul in verse 9 says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And Paul, Paul will say this phrase, Uh, time and time again, to show that this is worthy of you giving everything you have to this truth. What he just talked about in verse 8, that godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for this present life and the life to come. And so Paul puts a seal on this. Get after it. Get after it. This is what you need to be pursuing. I am an apostle, and I'm telling you, this is a faithful and trustworthy saying for you to commit your life to. And then in verse 10, Paul's going to show us three characteristics that we need to have that inform our pursuit. Three things we need to do as we pursue God. The first thing is this, that in our pursuit, we must toil. You see that in verse 10? Look what Paul says. He says, for to this end, we toil and strive. Paul was constantly known for his hard work. He was able to say that I worked harder than anybody else by the grace of God. Paul was a man who toiled. Paul was a man who worked hard to accomplish what he knew would glorify God. And so notice that this calling is difficult. This calling is hard, but it's infinitely worth the hard work. It's not a walk in the park, but it's infinitely worth the hard work. Timothy tells, Timothy is told that the pursuit of godliness is the worthwhile path. It's the hard path. And Paul describes his pursuit, how hard it is. Listen to what he says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24. Listen to how he describes the pursuit of godliness. He says this, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is the hard work that it takes in order to pursue godliness. There's discipline required. You will have to wake up and do things you don't want to do in that current moment. 
at a time that you don't want to do it. You're going to have to have conversations that are difficult to have because you know that conversation will glorify God. The pursuit of godliness requires sweat. It requires hard work. It requires toil. But every ounce of effort that we put towards it is worth it. And so practically, maybe something that each of us need to do, and I'm doing this as I think about 2018, is think through some of the spiritual disciplines, the things we know that draw us closer to God, and think about ways that we might have been lazy in certain disciplines this year. Maybe you notice that there's just a pattern in your life where you, like, you read the word, but you don't really pray that, that well. You don't really spend a lot of time praying to God. And as you look at your prayer life, you, you aren't able to say, I've really toiled, I've really strived hard after praying in a way that is godly. And maybe this year you need to make a commitment to praying more, to praying more deeply, to keeping a prayer journal, to doing something to revive your prayer life. Maybe you look at some of the other spiritual disciplines that you know about, about fasting, about journaling, witnessing, fellowship with other believers. Maybe there are things that as you look past this year, there's a moment in your life where you were good, but overwhelmingly this year, you did not toil after these things. You did not work hard after these things. And you can take up that one thing this year and say, this year, I am going to commit myself to fast. Maybe it's just twice in the year. Maybe it's once a month, but I'm going to be a disciple who works hard by fasting. Maybe you need to pick a spiritual discipline and focus on it in 2018, and at the end of the year, be able to say, I have toiled and I have strained in this thing. In our pursuit, we must toil, but the second thing Paul wants to show Timothy is that in his pursuit, he must hope. In his pursuit, he must hope. Look what he says, because we have set our hope on the living God. See, Paul shows Timothy that his labors and and the pursuit of godliness are not in vain. They all aim to one great hope. In the end, we pursue godliness because we know it's not going to be in vain. We know that God uses our godliness for his purposes, that in every way we seek to serve God with our lives, he uses that so that we are an instrument in his hands for his purposes. See, we set our hope on the living God. We don't do all this hard work thinking it's worthless. It is entirely worth it to God as he uses us for his mission of saving the nations and making his name known. Now, we need to hear this because some of us are so discouraged in our walk. We feel like we're putting in the effort, but when we look at the fruit, we feel like there's not much. And you need to know that is a lie, that that is not true, that God promises that when you pursue godliness, he uses it for his glory, always. Maybe not in ways that you see, maybe not in fruit that is evidenced visibly, but he always uses it. And so as we pursue him, we set our hope on the living God who is doing this, who is saving all people, especially those who believe. You see that in verse 10? This is the third thing we need to do in our pursuit. We must believe. We must believe. Now, here's a really difficult statement in scripture. Look at verse 10. This provides for us a lot of challenge where Paul says this, he is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Many people have used this to promote a theology called universalism. That's the theology that no matter what you do in your life, no matter what you believe, at the end of the day, you will be saved. And they'll go to verses like this that say that Jesus Christ is the savior of all people, especially those who believe, to say that, yes, Jesus saves people who believe in a special way, but he saves all people eventually. 
So no matter how you live, universalism preaches, you will receive eternal life into Jesus Christ. But we know from other places in Scripture that this can't be true. That there is a waiting for those who won't bend the knee to Jesus Christ, who won't believe in Jesus Christ, who won't cast their faith on Jesus Christ, eternal separation from him. See, what Paul is saying here isn't that all people will be universally saved. He's saying that all people can potentially be saved. See, the blood of Jesus Christ is so sufficient that if the whole world were to come to him in belief, he would have sufficiently paid for everybody's sins. Jesus saves all people potentially. But he only saves specifically those who believe. While he saves all people potentially, he only actually saves those who believe, the people who will actually cast their faith in him, the people who recognize their sinfulness before him, the people that come to him and recognize that they need him as their savior. And so I wonder if you're here this morning and you've never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, you've never believed in him, right now you are in your sin and Jesus is not your savior, you need to hear that he can be your savior, that nothing separates you from the cross except for your lack of belief. You need to hear that in this moment, in your very seat, you don't need to talk to anybody except to God and to confess to him that you believe in his son and that you are in desperate need of a savior and immediately Jesus Christ becomes your savior. He takes your sin. He takes it on the cross and he dies for it and he delivers you for all eternity from the punishment of your sin into eternal life with him. This is available to you. And the only thing that is separating you is your lack of belief. Will you believe in him this morning? Will you hear me? Will you hear our church as we plead for your soul that you would do one simple thing? Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe that your works aren't sufficient. Believe that you can do nothing to merit your salvation, that you need the work of someone else who is infinitely greater than you to do it. And the moment you do that, you will be saved. See, in our pursuit, we must believe that Jesus is worthy to save us. And so as we come to a close, I wonder if you would consider the question that I asked at the beginning. Of all the things that we could pursue, of all the things we could legitimately be called at the end of this year, will you resolve to be a good servant? If your answer is yes to that, then the response then is to resolve to put before you what is right to be pursuing right doctrine, to be pursuing right theology. And in light of putting before you what is right, you pursue what holds promise. You devote yourself to godliness. You discipline yourself to serve the Lord.